0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host Jason Pereira. Today on the show is the second in a five-part series on open banking, specifically looking at the state of open banking in the U.S. And in order to have this discussion, I brought on three different people with three different perspectives: Frederick Menez of OneSpan, John Pitts of Plaid, and Yusuf West of Relay. And with that, here's my interview with all three of them. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank to here. Excellent. Hello. So, as sure you know, the the thrilling topic that is open banking. Uh, I may say that in a bit of jest, because anyone's who's listened to the previous podcasts already has, has seen just how animated people will get over this. So I hope that this one ends up being just as animated. So we're going to go around and let everybody introduce themselves. And I'm going to start off with John. John, please introduce yourself and your company.
1: Sure. My name is John Pitts. I am the head of policy for Plaid. We are a data network originated out of the United States, but we Are actually now live in Canada, the UK, uh, France, Spain, Ireland, and the Netherlands, which actually gives us exposure to three maybe three and a half different open banking, open finance regimes, depending on how you count them. We serve more than 3,000 FinTech customers and have integrations into more than 10,000 financial institutions globally. Excellent, and pending regulatory approval at the
0: time of this recording, maybe owned by Visa, maybe not, just pending regulatory approval. So waiting on that. So Yusuf, yourself, please.
2: Awesome, I'm Yusuf West. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Relay. Uh, Relay is a digital bank for small business owners. I've spent most of my career in kind of small business fintech or accounting tech. So I have a lot of experience working with banks uh, because actually getting the banking data into the accounting system is quite hard. And the genesis for starting Relay uh, is basically like banking plus back office automation equals cash flow visibility. But really, it was like the idea that access to financial data is really hard. And that is the limiting factor for small business owners. So we're building banking that's deeply integrated into your back office. Um, And we figured that's the only way to actually solve it. Excellent. And Frederick, yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is
3: uh, Frederick Menes. I'm with the company OneSpan as a director of product security. I'm based in Belgium, so uh, pardon my accent, uh, but our company is headquartered in, in Chicago. So we're actually a global company uh, with um, about 3,000 financial institutions uh, as customers. So basically, the role or the mission of OneSpan is to digitize or is to secure digital banking applications to provide strong authentication, identity verification services, electronic signing of documents, et cetera. And the regulatory compliance is, is very important for us.
0: Excellent. So thank you again all for joining me and nice to have the different perspectives, everyone from the actual person building the FinTech to the people who built the pipes and worried about the regulation in the full stack. So we got a nice little broad spectrum of what's going on here. So. This episode is airing right after the uh, European episode is airing. And I think it's no secret that Europe has been pretty much at the foreground or the forefront of open banking initiatives around the world through initiatives like PSD 1 and 2. Let's contrast that to the state of affairs in the U.S. So what are the state of affairs from a regulatory standpoint in the U.S. currently? I'll let open that up to whoever wants to tackle it.
1: So I'm happy to jump in on that. The state of affairs in the US, uh, let me actually sort of lay out two frameworks that I think are helpful in thinking about this. There's open banking, capital O, capital B, which is the actual regulatory requirements around open banking. And then there's open banking, little O, little B, which is the actual sort of act of a consumer or a small business being able to share their data from one source at an FI to another. In the US, I would actually, I would challenge the statement that Europe has been at the forefront. I think from an actual market perspective, the US is five years ahead of Europe on the actual practice of open banking. We are, though, five years behind on the regulatory side. And so it's actually a really, really exciting time right now, exciting maybe for me and and like six other people in the world. But I find it incredibly exciting that the CFPB has just released an advance notice of proposed rulemaking that would actually start a process to do a rule on the critical open banking regulation in the United States, which is Dodd-Frank section 1033. Right now, it is 75 words long. Those 75 words say the consumer has the right to access their financial information. I just shortened it from 75 to about 10 there. But all of little O, little B open banking in the United States is built on those 75 words. And as you can probably imagine, those 75 words don't answer all of the open questions. And so there's a critical, critical moment right now where a lot of open questions are going to get answered in the next two years. And depending on how those answers arise, it will either accelerate the industry massively or restrict growth. So I
0: agree with everything you said there. And it's been said several times on my podcast, whether it be this series or not, that the Regulation's failure to state exactly what format that information comes in uh, has led to all kinds of very amusing stories around the industry about just how bad the format is. And I often say that many companies have taken the approach of, okay, you can have it, but here, crawl across glass to get it, (laughs) right, basically. And, you know, I'm preaching to the choir at Plaid because, quite honestly, uh, you guys have to get past that. And yeah, let's let's go back to the concept of what you're talking about in terms of the U.S. versus Europe. You're both playing to your strengths, quite honestly, right? There's a lot of um, entrepreneurial nature in the U.S. I mean, no one's going to deny that the guys are an entrepreneurial center of the universe, for lack of a better term. And the Europeans like to lead with regulation, which I think both provides a very interesting contrast for the rest of the countries around the world. Anyone want to add to that? Yes, Frederick.
3: I want to add that there are two fundamentally different approaches in Europe and the United States, but it's not black or white. I mean, also the approach to open banking in Europe also started from businesses who wanted to do open banking to aggregate data from different bank accounts. And that was especially the case in the United Kingdom. But then, indeed, the European regulators, they saw that this was happening, and they wanted to regulate this, built a regulatory framework around this. And this has given an additional incentive, especially in countries outside the United Kingdom on the continent. And indeed, I mean, the open banking movement in Europe is now largely driven by regulation. I agree with that.
0: So let's talk about, I mean, so we have the kind of, for lack of a better term, get permission, almost more so it's let's let's, make, let's lay out the groundwork for how this is going to work versus the let's move fast and break things and ask for, ask for forgiveness later approach, that each of them has their own strengths and weaknesses. I'm going to turn this over to Yousef. As a actual implementer of a business that's trying to utilize open banking frameworks, the lack of, or the current state of regulatory the regulatory regime in the U.S. How has that impacted your ability to to just act on your
2: behalf on your company? Uh, so it hasn't impacted us at all. Like effectively, the way that we built kind of our version of open banking is by building private relationships with the two key accounting partners that we want to work with. We can build an API that if someone needs access to information, it's really easy to do. We're integrated into the Plaid Direct network. The private market solution makes tons of sense. I think the challenge is actually driving, creating incentives for financial institutions across the U.S. to truly integrate into platforms like Plaid. Right? You probably have five to ten large financial institutions that are building direct relationships. Even those direct relationships, candidly, are not and not a knock on Plaid at all. This applies to QuickBooks Online or Zero or anyone. They're just not, it's not in their DNA to build high quality software. And so to actually deliver like a true open banking, the dream that we all think of, super reliable data, high resolution information, really increasing financial visibility for small business owners or consumers. I think that's a dream that will only exist as a result of like Challenger or neobanks. Yeah. One of the
0: things that makes me cringe the most when I hear it from major financial institutions is maybe we should just build this ourselves. And it's like, everybody's, everybody's quietly chuckling right now because, (laughs) because we all know it's like... Yeah, you know, and maybe I can quit my job and become a professional baseball player at the same time. Like these are your organization is not built for that, and it's best to rely on people who are really good at doing that. Let me turn this back to John, specifically around statements made there regarding uh, companies integrating into your platform versus not. What are the incentives or motivations towards the ones who have said, "Yeah, you know what? I'm going to steer full
1: bore into dealing with with Plaid." so i guess we're talking specifically on the bank side right in terms right. of yeah so because really plaid is a is a two-sided network right we've got the developers on one side the fintechs building products and the banks on the other i think the actually the thing that is the most interesting about what's happened over the past year is banks are starting to become more like fintechs in that they're starting to develop their own in-house products to compete with fintechs. And fintechs are becoming more like banks. They're starting to go out and get bank charters. And so we're actually seeing this two-sided network start to collapse down into really like, you can't tell the difference between a bank and a fintech anymore as easily as you could have. But let me step back from that and and talk about sort of the banks that are the ones most eager to partner with us. It's interesting. They tend to be the ones that are viewing themselves as a platform for their customers to get access to a network of services, right? And that they don't just have to be bank-offered services anymore. I think really thinking about financial services as making a transition from really two things geography based and big box based to one that is no longer geographically tied and is tied based on the consumer experience and how personalized it is, rather than the ability to offer sort of the most inclusive products for the largest number of people. And mm-hmm. it turns out that if you if you sort of make that transition as a bank, you then realize, oh, one, I can have a single branch and serve customers all over the country. Because all I need to do is be the app that's the one that they want to touch on their phone first. And also the thing that makes them want to use my app is not necessarily all of the services I offer. It's what other services can you get by being a customer of this bank? Any small bank now can offer to its customers, you can use 3,000 fintech apps based on your account at this bank. That's a really powerful anchor to build a strong relationship with that customer and to be a channel for your customer to get access to services that you can't build yourself or offer yourself.
0: In fairness, though, answering the question of how, uh, you know, all I need to do is, be the app that they want to touch first. That's not a <laughs> that's that's not an easy thing, and it's also one that does not have a large moat unless that experience is really, really fantastic. So I'm going to turn this over to uh, Frederick with a question, and this comes back to security more or less. It comes down to you know I had a conversation yesterday with an institution that I deal with for insurance. Now let's not even go down the insurance route because I know how backwards that industry is altogether. But the protests I got in general from them all resonate and I'm sure were are heard in the in the banking sector as well are around security concerns, which to me is always a red herring, right? Because this has been solved. Right. So so talk to me about how many institutions that you guys deal with where they're basically they're still at that 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 point where you have to educate them that we can do this in a secure method. And it's not just, you're not just gonna expose yourself. Cause I mean they're going from a insular closed mindset to one of openness. That is not something that happens overnight. So first off, how many of them are still that's their primary concern. And secondly, how do you get them out of that mindset?
3: So, globally, we have around uh, 3,000 uh, financial institutions uh, as customers uh, at the moment. In the United States, I think we have uh, around 100 financial institutions as customers. And indeed, I mean, everywhere in the world where you, where you discuss open banking with, with banks, there is the concern about data security. And that makes sense because banks used to control this customer data themselves. They wouldn't be sharing it with, with any other organization. But now they are being forced by regulation or they are being driven by market forces, by customer demands to share their data with other organizations as well. Well, and banks should, should be doing this in a controlled way because there are new security threats that are introduced as a consequence of open banking. So one security threat that, that comes, well, that is, that is quite obvious is that data is now being shared with other companies, fintech companies, which might not have the same security standards as banks have today. So if financial data that was originally owned by a certain bank would end up with a fintech and this fintech uh, faces a security breach, the reputation or even worse of the bank could be damaged uh, as well. So for that reason, I believe it's important that at this point, regulation is actually very helpful to create a level playing field for security. Regulation can help to make sure that all the players in the ecosystem, banks, fintech companies implement the right security technology. In the absence of regulation, this is much more difficult, I think, especially for younger companies, maybe fintechs that have less experience in this area. They maybe want to spend their money more on functionality than on on security very true. Sorry, John, you wanted to
1: make a comment. So Yeah. So I I totally agree on the regulation. I guess the one thing that I would, maybe this is where we can start getting raucous in this conversation, (laughs) challenge a little bit, right? Is like, what is the thing that you want to regulate here? Because Frederick, I would push back on the notion that sort of other companies having this banking data is a new thing, right? Like my dry cleaner has my name, my address, and my account and routing number because I paid them with a check, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've got that. And you know who else has it? When I signed up for direct deposit at my employer, my HR person had that. And maybe the the payroll company now has it. So already even before open banking, we existed in a world where hundreds of people might have your banking information. And no one thought that like, oh my God, we need to go regulate the dry cleaners and they need to get a license in order to get paid by check. right? So I don't want to make light of it because there is a very real risk there that you point out. But I think it's key to understand where is that risk and how do you properly address it through regulation. So I would say one of the new things is the existence of an aggregator or a data platform like Plaid means that there is a point of concentration where many companies can be getting data through a single set of pipes and that it may be appropriate. And that's what they've done in, in Europe to say, okay, you know, if you're an account information service provider... You need a license. But this is where I've actually seen a break between Europe and the UK. And I'm quite interested to see what's going to happen in Canada because if we can get a little bit like you're super nerdy and technical here, you're can on. we can right. we get like a okay? So, like in the UK, the AIS license is for the retrieval and redisplay of the information, right? That means if you're a company that just wants to use banking data you need to get an AIS license, even if you're not the one retrieving it from the bank APIs yourself. In Europe, most of the countries have said, no, it's actually, it's the retrieval that we are regulating. It's not the fact that a company is using it. Companies have been using bank data for years. The new thing is the retrieval. Canada's looking at their consumer directed finance law right now. And one of the key questions they're going to answer, have to answer is what is the appropriate regulated activity, Mm -hmm. right? Like, do you regulate the pipes, which are the new thing, or the fact that a company is using the data that comes out of those pipes, which is frankly not a new thing. And if you've already got a really good privacy law in place, like GDPR or Pipeta, C11 now coming in Canada uh, to strengthen that and make it even more universal, it strikes me as kind of misguided to suggest that those general privacy laws need to be sort of doubled down on just because the bank, the data happens to be banking data from a specific source, as opposed to banking data that you may have from all of the analog ways we've been sharing banking data for the last 50 years.
0: Yeah, I often, it's interesting you echo that because I often. When when people raise a concern about security over new technology, I always kind of do a gut check to myself and say, Well, how many different ways am I exposed already? Like, or people talking about, I'll give you the extreme example, people concerned about the government trying to control their minds, but meanwhile they offer up all their information on Facebook, right? Like <laughs> they don't need to. Some Silicon Valley company now knows how to direct your level of discord based on based on the things they show you, right? So it's a challenge. So let me turn this over to asking about the folks in the U.S. one more time. I'm going to ask you about everybody around the table. What is going right in the American situation and what needs massive improvement in the American situation? I'm going to start with the practitioner first with uh, Youssef.
2: So I think... From our perspective, you know, I think the dream of open banking, like you look at Europe from a regulatory perspective is in the thought in Canada, at least here, is that effectively regulation will drive action from banks in a way that you won't see elsewhere. And so in Canada, that might actually be true because you have kind of an oligarchical system where you have five big banks and maybe 20 second tier banks, and that's the banking system. That's it, right? Right. But in the US, it's very different. And so the US might actually not need regulation in the same way that some of the perhaps slower moving countries like Canada might actually need it to get to an open banking standard because of the volume of financial institutions in the US and the level of competition.
0: Well, I also think it's also their competition laws in general, right? We have things that would be considered collusion happening in Canada on a daily basis that are not against the law. Like there are stories I could tell you about things that happen in broad daylight that, It's like, wait a sec. Like, if this was the US, you guys would be hauled in front of a sub-Senate subcommittee hearing right now. Like, but we get away with it. They they get away with it. So it's nuts. But yeah, I'll let you you finish with that thought.
2: Yeah, like I think when I look at the U.S. market and I think about what specifically small business owners actually require from like an access perspective and quality of information perspective, I just fundamentally don't believe that like open banking is really going to solve it. Um, John, when you said, oh, you know, a bank can say to their customers, well, you can work with these 3000 fintechs through our, our banking platform, quote unquote, that means they can just like log into their account, right? Which is a pretty basic set of functionality when you think about what software can do. And so I think the dream of open banking, again, I don't think that it actually gets completed through regulation or the, I think it's actually through private markets. And I think it's through deep innovation and competition, as opposed to from the traditional financial institutions who are trying to become fintechs.
0: Okay, let's uh, go over to Frederick, your thoughts on what's going right and what they're getting right and what they need to improve upon.
3: So, I think what's going very well in the United States, obviously, is the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, that really sets the United States apart. So there, there are many fintech companies uh, being erected. Industry groups are defining open banking standards, API standards, and there's NACHA, there is the Financial Data Exchange Group. So there is a lot of activity happening. And that, that is great. And that I think that's, that's, that it's a more natural approach than what we have seen in the European Union so far, I believe. So I can only applaud that. On the other hand, if you look at the technological side of open banking, you see that in the United States, it is still largely based on screen scraping. So basically, the websites of the fintech company or the third-party provider receives credentials from the end user, and then the fintech company logs into the application of the, of the bank. And there, the fintech company can basically grab all the data that it wants, even other data than, than intended by the end user. So there, there are some security concerns there. There are some privacy concerns in the usage of screen scraping. So I believe that also the United States, like others, regions needs to evolve towards um, an open banking regime based on apis which allows much more granular access much more controlled access to open banking data and maybe as a second comment related to this authentication of end users and the way that the user logs logs on to his bank account in an open banking regime is also very important do you really want the user to give his banking credentials to the fintech company probably not Uh, probably you want the user to grant access to the FinTech company, but in a way that the FinTech company doesn't receive the actual banking credentials of the user. So again, th- these are two items that I think need improvement, but it's it's very good that this entrepreneurial spirit is so so much alive in the United States.
0: Well, interestingly, because I think your your authentication problem is only solved through proper API, API implementation, right? Because without that, where you know they log in on a look through one time, get authentication, get linked up with as, a, as an approved service provider on implementation, they're going to have to store that password just anytime there's a subsequent update of the information, right? There's no other way around that short of asking the consumer for it over and over and over again, so yeah, I echo check out your entire sentiment altogether, John. Throwing it back to you.
1: Yeah, I really agree with Frederick's two points on where there needs to be improvement, and I think that actually the thing that the U.S. is doing right is is exactly sort of I would say it slightly differently, Frederick. I think the entrepreneurialism is is what is uh, enables this, but I would say the key thing that makes the US market special is it's being driven by consumer demand, right? Like as soon as there's a consumer demand out there, there is an app to meet that demand rather than someone trying to sort of guess what the consumer demand will be and build a product around it or regulate a product around it. But that's where the, the two things that Frederick points out as sort of gaps in the US market APIs and authentication really become critical because the advantage of screen scraping is the data is there and if there's a consumer demand for that data for that data to be used by a third party screen scraping can accomplish it once you shift to apis there's the risk that the api doesn't include a data element Uh that the consumer may want to share that like that becomes the critical risk in that transition from screen scraping to apis and Platt at least thinks that that transition is absolutely critical. We recently publicly dedicated ourselves to 75% of our traffic dedicated to APIs by the end of 2021 in the US market, which I think is a a stunning achievement if we can get there. It's going to require a lot of work with banks and collaborators, but there's risks in doing that. Frederick, I I had a, a great conversation with a regulator in Belgium and was talking about PSD2 only covering payment accounts. And I, I, I won't name this person uh, to preserve their an- anonymity, but I was saying one of the really important use cases in the United States is mortgages, where it's really important to be able to see your existing mortgage and be able to use that data to shop for a cheaper mortgage. And the regulator said, well, we don't need that in Belgium. No one ever changes their mortgage in Belgium. That's a stupid product. We shouldn't change the law to enable it. A
0: chicken <laughs> and egg scenario? Like, they don't do it because it's not easy, so therefore no one changes it? Like So,
1: so uh, apparently the reason is there's a three-month prepayment penalty that's standard on Belgian mortgages that all of the banks are allowed to do that makes it incredibly costly to actually change your mortgage, and therefore even wow. a- 500 basis point savings wouldn't make it worthwhile. But again, again, it came down to the opinion of a single regulator saying, well, I wouldn't use this product, therefore the product shouldn't exist. If When you transition to APIs, if someone makes that decision, whether it be a regulator or an inter, uh, industry body that just says, what? APRs shouldn't be available. We don't think consumers need to share them, right? When you make that transition to API, if you leave data out, you are taking open banking straight backward instead of straight forward. And I think that's the critical thing that needs to be done in that transition. Similarly, on on authentication, totally agree, Frederick. The thing about APIs is they can be much improved. One of the things that scares me the most coming out of Europe is this idea of ninety day reauthentication, where every three months you're making oh, the consumer say, "Yes, I'm still the consumer. Yes, I still want to use this." Product that's a lot of friction to introduce for just continuing to use a service that you've already said you want. Haven't we already learned how much pop-ups suck? Anyway, I have a number of things to unpack from your comment, but
0: I think Joseph, did you have uh, something? Yeah, I, I
2: wanted to ask a question, right? Like I've worked in a business where screen scraping was the core technology. Uh, we screen scraped like bank statements from bank accounts for tens of thousands of small businesses across the U.S. and I wonder, like, I agree about data access, right? We would have picked up APIs to any number of banks in a second if they were available. But like, we all agree that APIs are the future. Uh, John, you're the person who out of you and I that really lives in this every day. So like, how do you manage that risk, right? Like we're moving to APIs. It probably will get regulated to some extent. Like how do you, how do the banks get incented to provide the right information for business owners or consumers?
1: It's a really good question, Yusuf. And I think it's going to be a combination of things. I mean, my approach philosophically is to say part of it can't just be incentive. This is where the regulation part comes in. There needs to be, if you are defining what a consumer has the right to, you need to start on a rights-based system. And this is what I'm going to be encouraging the Canadian government to consider as part of their consultation is you need to establish what the right is for the consumer and say let's say for example it is anything that a consumer is shown on a paper bank statement must by right be available in a cdf or open banking framework then actually building the api to those endpoints becomes really easy because everyone agrees these are the data endpoints that need to be made available the challenge then becomes not building that api but scaling it and in the us market with 10000 fis asking a single branch community bank in idaho to launch a 10 million dollar api program is probably not a reasonable request to make certainly not a reasonable regulation to impose not a i think problem that's we have
0: where the... in canada comes in because they got plenty of money so. <laughs> This is where they're cut, this is where their oligopoly cuts both ways.
1: Well, no, but uh, Jason, I I would push back on that a little bit because Canada also has a lot of great, really small credit unions, right? And like they're not regulated by finance. But you there's can, a centralized can... credit union body that they all clear through, right? Yeah, so... but does each credit union have to develop their own API? I mean, all mm-hmm. i is yeah. there's long tail problems that are real and that you need to accommodate for. And mm-hmm. one of the things that Plaid has done is we actually built an API, Plaid Exchange, that rather than a bank building the API to integrate with Plaid, we have the API that a bank can integrate into, which is a much much lower lift for the bank and I think solves a lot of those scaling out to the long tail problems, yeah. but I don't honestly believe that the market by itself, if you if the market had to define what the API endpoints are to mm-hmm. the exclusion of any rights-based statement I think at best case scenario, you're going to end up with a consumer having different rights based on where they bank and the yeah. bilateral contracts that have been signed between that bank and all the data aggregators. That does not feel like a good open banking world to me.
0: Well, let me thank you in advance for, telling, for talking to my government about that exact point, because yes, that is exactly right. It should come down to what is the right the consumer has versus, okay, here's our interpretation of this, knock yourself out. It's especially knowing that our oligopoly is not one to play nice unless made to. Youssef, you have something to throw in there?
2: I think what I was going to ask you was like, I agree, kind of a, a mix between regulatory measures and private market is probably the solution here. And that sounded like what you were kind of alluding to. I just wonder, like, it feels like an easy solve for that long tail in the U.S. where you create an asset threshold. Anyone under a certain asset, like assets under management, doesn't actually have to abide by those, those regulations and you hope for a private market solution. Is that reasonable? Like, again, you're the one who lives in it. Right? You guys yeah. already
0: kind of built one out of frustration, right? And said, here,
1: use it. <laughs> well, so, so Yusuf, it, it's probably reasonable. And frankly, like the primary style of US bank regulation is to do exactly that. You draw a line at assets and you say, if you're under this, you don't have to comply with it. The thing that I worry about is if you are a small bank and your customer can't use any fintech apps because you're not part of the open banking network, then you're going to start losing customers to the larger banks that do have all of those connected apps right you you are creating a digital divide between small banks and credit unions and large banks that actually makes the small banks perverse effect would be that that regulation would make the small banks less competitive so I, I agree you need to tailor the regulation to the small banks and ideally private sector solutions like plat exchange working with the core providers can become that solution where the banks don't have to have a heavy regulatory mandate and don't have to spend million developing an API, but you need to be careful about that perverse incentive where you can actually shut out small banks from open banking by saying they're not covered by it.
0: It's an interesting creative destruction problem, right? Because you have, you know, the promise of open banking is the if done right, going back to the scraping versus APIs and and doing the APIs right and getting the right amount of like the right data out, which is basically everything the client's already entitled to and disclosed. That's the universe where we let a thousand flowers bloom, right? We basically let entrepreneurs figure out all kinds of functionalities that no bank ever Dreamed of and delivered better value over time. But if that comes at the cost of smaller players in the market and the bigger banks become just more service, you know, banking as a pi- platform back end providers, there's an argument to be said that, you know, in a lot of ways we're benefiting the big ones, we're sacrificing the small ones, but in the long run, do we get this long tail of, of massive explosion of innovation? But I think we're not, I think we're going to, here's the thing. I think you can't fully solve for that. You're going to lose. You're going to, there's going to be bodies. There's going to be bodies left behind and the cost, the barrier to entry, there will be a cost of entry at some point, even if it is a solution, like what you've done, John, like there's going to be casualties, but I think the promise of the potential for what comes out of it is just so much greater than what the number of casualties could be. Anyone want to jump in and contradict me?
3: (laughs) Frederick. Maybe two remarks uh, from my side. First of all, this is not new. Uh, smaller banks already had to provide online banking services uh, in the past. They had, they had to develop mobile apps already in the past. So open banking is just one of the next items that they also have to do. So it's, it's not new, I think. Um, smaller banks already have a disadvantage that they need to offer similar services with smaller resources, uh, perhaps. But secondly, what's happening now is that these smaller banks are actually coming together and using uh, services, open banking services of an intermediate platform. So they are not implementing all the APIs themselves, but they are relying on third parties to provide these APIs for them and handling all the integrations with the fintechs or the third party providers. So I think the, the point is valid, but it's maybe not necessarily new. And yeah, the smaller banks understand it and are trying to find ways to address that. Indeed,
0: but I mean, this is this is just part of the the job, right? Like, if you're a small scale player in an industry that requires massive scale to be truly successful and massive infrastructure costs, you're always behind the eight ball. So I agree with you. And and you know, this is just the world evolving. They're going to have to meet these business changes over time. And again, there will be bodies, unfortunately. So with that, let's go back to the, uh, I want to go back slightly to the screen scraping uh, earlier and just ask a quick question to John. How much do you drive Companies nuts with your screen scraping. Because <laughs> I have, I have <laughs> literally, I remember one time specifically from the previous round of um, hearings regarding open banking in Canada, where the banks complained, like, oh, we have this many number of screen scrapes per day, and it's it's flooding our systems, to which my response was too goddamn bad. like People are entitled to their info. That's your problem to basically let them supply it. End of story, right? that That's my anti-bank opinion. But seriously, like how much pushback do you get on this stuff? <laughs> it's been nuts. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, so this is where my answer is going to be like boring and, and not as fun and inflammatory oh. as, as you might want. But like the reality is screen scraping has already evolved quite a bit behind the scenes, right? Like one of the things that we do with most of our bank partners is things like IP allow listing, right? Where they know it's actually plaid traffic. It's clearly identified as plaid traffic. So they know the difference between a consumer request and a plaid request. That's really actually quite important because occasionally you have days like when the US government sent out stimulus payments to every single citizen early on in the COVID crisis. It turns out a lot of people logged onto their bank accounts, right? To see if that money had hit. And actually there were banks who had their websites crashing just from the consumer volume. So we were able to proactively turn off all of our traffic for a short Mm -hmm. period of time, basically to allow the banks to handle it. It is though, like, this is the reason, Jason, to switch to APIs, right? It's better for us It's better for the banks, it's better for everyone, Mm -hmm. as long as the API switch is just a technical switch as opposed to a change in the consumer's right. And actually, volume of API calls is one of those things that's going to need to get sorted out. There are right now in the US market and maybe potentially in the Canadian market, banks who want to sign agreements saying, yep, we're going to do an API and the aggregator is allowed to make two API calls on the account per day. Maybe the consumer wants their information updated more than twice a day. But they're especially, um, you
0: know, like maybe I can see that like on average, sure, keep that threshold, in which case you guys can look at user counts, the, you know, this, the understanding of that, but that's ridiculous, right? If someone's waiting for a crucial payment a day of, like, I don't know, it just- this Well,
1: and, and so th- this is also like, this is also where I think it becomes critical to- really be forward thinking and how you're building the infrastructure and not be stuck in arguments of the past, right? Because like, Jason, I can argue back and forth with a bank about What's the number of API calls that's appropriate? But ultimately, that argument is really just a version of a screen scraping argument, right? Because it's based on a technology that assumes the data is pull data rather than push data. You can build an API that turns it into push data so that when a transaction happens on a bank, the bank doesn't have to wait for Plaid to make an API call. The bank can just push the data out, right? That actually really allows you to manage your load balance much better. It's a far better system, but it's one where it requires this continuous, rigorous, forward-looking analysis of how the infrastructure should work, Yep. as opposed to arguing over how the infrastructure used to work five years ago, and how can we replicate and tweak around the edges of a five-year-old infrastructure system? Well,
0: you got there first. I mean, I was going to go to webhooks versus API and push versus pull. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, like, the good news is that we're all used to the concept to some degree. If you use an iPhone for Apple Pay or anything like that, like every time someone spends something on my credit card, ding, notification. Like, it's just, that's the kind of functionality that a lot of consumers have gotten used to, and we should be seeing from all banking. Frederick, you got a comment there.
3: I wanted to maybe debunk a myth that might still exist. Um, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> under <laughs> under PSD2, screen scraping is still perfectly allowed, uh, actually. It's not that PSD2 is saying you have to use APIs for open banking. Uh, it's still fine to use screen scraping, but actually screen scraping 2.0 uh, with additional security measures. So, for instance, the end user who wishes to to grant a fintech company access to his banking data needs to be authenticated. So that's, that's, uh, that's one of the security measures that needs to be added.
0: And I think that's an honestly, that's an interesting way of keeping the companies honest about the data that they're putting out there, right? Because if they draw the line at a level that, as we discussed earlier, is not all the information that the consumer should be benefiting from or could benefit from, well, then the private market's going to go out there and develop. He's going to choose to use screen scraping over the API with that company because they're not getting what they need out of it, right? So. It's an interesting, not gun to the head, but
1: but way to keep them honest about this. Oh wait, Jason, I thought you were going to go to premium APIs on that and and really stir the pot by asking no, everyone's not, opinion no, on premium no, APIs. No. Do we get let's to go get there into, now?
0: Not let's not get into the idea of upselling access to my data that just is oh my head will explode. So let's go back to the uh, the practitioner here and let him or the implementer here and let him let him talk. Talk to me about what it is, where it is you feel constrained right now in the current regime? Like, is there anything you're not able to do in your company that you want to be able to do, Yosef, that resolution of a lot of this stuff is going to help you with? Or do you feel you managed to navigate that sufficiently?
2: I guess there's two ends of kind of that equation, right? So, one is just what do we do with us being, you know, banking service and customers getting data out of our system? There's no limitations, right? It's It's very much like a private market problem. I think our view is effectively that all of the TAM and like small business digital banking is actually with traditional FIs. And so how do you get them to switch over, right? And getting customers to switch, as we know, bank switching is actually quite a challenging thing. Emotionally, it's just, you think, oh God, I never want to deal with that. And so when you look at some of the regulatory and Jason, maybe you're you're. No, the well, I mean, case, I look at like me I love you know, switching Let things.
0: me address <laughs> that. Let's, let's address that. A, there's there's immense yeah. amounts of friction, right? There's immense oh. amounts of friction because mm-hmm. you have to go in, sign paperwork. There's tons of paperwork, all this other stuff. Yeah. Like they don't make it, they make it easy to sign up for an account online with some places, but right. you got to close one down, pain in the butt. Secondly, actually, I had this argument with with a bank one time. It's like, so you let me open this online, but you're forcing me to go into your office to to close it down. It's just like in technology parlance, that's called a dark pattern. You're trying to disincentivize my action. The second reason is, and coming from a purely Canadian perspective, I'm just changing to another flavor of vanilla. So why am I going to bother, right? Like there's a, you know, you live in Canada, you know, the incentive. Some people live and die and say, this is my bank. I love it. Some people say, okay, I'm never going to deal with that one. But the vast majority of us shrug our shoulders and say, Eh, it's all the same, right? It's like you order a Coke, they say they have Pepsi, you don't blink twice. Like it's it's just, it is what it is, right? So there's been no common perceptual benefit to moving from green to blue to brown to whatever in Ontario, sure. in Canada.
2: Yeah, like I, I agree with that general emotional statement, but I think if you ask people who are switching business bank accounts and how long it actually takes them, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, like I, I think when we were initially doing customer development uh, before starting Relay, we were talking to someone and they're like, yeah, we just moved from Bank of America to Wells Fargo. I was like, oh, great. Like, how long did that take? They're like, well, you know, we didn't focus on it too much, but it took us nine months. And I was like, God, just that's terrible. Like, how could that possibly yourself be? Okay? Sort of
0: four, four months this year to get it done.
2: Right. And she's. I'm like, wait, what would it look like if you tried to switch? Like, really focused on it. It's like three months. That would be it. And so that's obviously terrible and not, not the real answer. And so from our perspective, the benefits of perhaps regulatory capture in this case would be like, one, um, actually making data available to us so that we could see the transaction history much more reliably rather than having to rely on a plaid or one of their competitors. Because, you know, relying on screen scraping, while it is a decent technology, it's not a 10 out of 10 technology in the way that you would hope APIs would be. And then two is you look at Europe where switching is actually materially easy. It's a requirement for banks to actually be competitive. Um, and <laughs> I, right. And in theory. Sorry,
0: sorry, I'm Canadian. My heart just stops. Yeah. on stuff like that. Wait a minute. Switching is right. easy and competition is the thing? Tell me about this magical fantasy land I've never been to. <laughs> I've never lived in.
2: Like the, in, in theory, in theory, right? And maybe Frederick, you can speak to this better, better than I can. But like switching is is something that is supposed to be easy and there are supposed to be open standards so that i can move my information across and i can move my you know all the bill payers that i need to to pay across i can move my direct deposit information easily and that i think would be a welcome change and drive increased competition and increased innovation excellent someone I think, Frederick, do you want to jump in after that one? Or is there anything you want
3: to add? Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to say it's easy to open bank accounts in in, in Europe, for sure. Switching, that's something else. I think people just keep opening other bank accounts instead of switching.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, like, it's always, let's be honest, it's always, I don't care what line of business you're in, it's always easier to start with a fresh client on a new system than it is to migrate an existing client to a new system. Like, that's just... When you're starting from zero, there's a strategic advantage. but yes, I, I like the utopian view that you just basically said exists somewhere you know, so I may die before I see it in this country. but it's uh, I, I was
2: under the impression that it existed in the UK. I don't know if that perhaps you're deeper in the policy world, Frederick or, or John. I've seen it done in. US banks, but with a lot of you know
0: hamster wheels spinning in the background, right? Like one bank in particular in, the U, in, in California, specifically around the valley makes their name on like kind service to move to move you over. So you want to go from bank A to bank B, okay, see that team over there, that team is dedicated to making sure every last bill that you have gets paid on time, because we're transferring over gets the last three months of statements, and we will do everything on your behalf. And inevitably, hamster wheels, left to people like technology breaks enough people break a lot more. So it's not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot better than what I go through at this point. So before we wrap up, uh, I want to go around and ask everybody for kind of a final parting thought. Uh, If you had, you know you're in front of U.S. regulators, and you're basically saying this is this is something that you really need to focus focus on. What's the one key thing that you want them to focus on, and one piece of advice you would give them? I'm
3: gonna start with Frederick. All right, um, of course. I mean, I'm I'm with one span cybersecurity company, so naturally, I would say it's it's very important for regulators to make sure that financial institutions. Strike a good balance between security and and convenience, especially when it comes to accessing bank accounts and and um, initiating uh, financial transactions. So security is, is is important, that's for sure, but it has to be balanced properly with convenience as well. People don't want to be bothered every time that they want to log on with a very strong authentication mechanism. But luckily, there are techniques to strike this balance, like risk-based authentication, adapting the the level of Uh, Security that is required to the actual context at that specific moment. I think that is really key to make uh, open banking successful, also in the United States. Excellent,
2: Yusuf. Awesome. I guess the one piece of advice would be, and I think this is a theme that we've kind of cut across throughout this this almost hour, is basically to listen to what the private market is actually driving in terms of solutions, and seeing how to codify that into regulation, uh, while still allowing for flexibility to allow consumer demands and business demands to evolve that regulation. So the thing that Frederick mentioned around, uh, I think it was PSD2, uh, where screen scraping is still allowed, but perhaps in a a more secure manner, I think a solution like that is is super great. Excellent. And John, putting you in the gun after everybody else is taking
0: the the better answers. Uh, (laughs) Kidding. What is the one thing you would tell them to focus on
1: on? Yeah, the better answers were already given. So I'll give the joke answer, which is focus on my ANPR comment and just do what I write, uh, because obviously that's the correct answer. But more seriously, I'll take it a notch from where Yusuf and Frederick were and say, the key sort of meta thing that US regulators need to do is recognize that if we are going to be in a world of consumer centered finance, which is where I truly believe we're going, the regulations need to be consumer centered, not bank centered. And let me unpack that just a tiny little bit, right? Like our our history of regulation is to assume that the bank is making most of the choices on behalf of the consumer, right? Including like third party, Networks right? Well, like, locals, who, continue. who are the third parties that you work with, who built your website, who built your, you know, your remote check capture app, right? The bank is making all of those choices and therefore the regulation assumes the bank is making that choice and puts massive obligations on the bank in third party regulation because they are responsible. In a consumer directed finance world, where the consumer has this fundamental right to their data and is in control of their data and who has access to it, it's not the bank choosing, it's the consumer choosing. And that may seem like a small difference, but given that all of our regulation is written around the the idea that the bank chooses, not the consumer, that's a massive change in how you think about what you need to do and how you think about the shape of the regulatory world. That to me is the key transition. I think it then, what follows from that are all of the things that Yusuf just laid out in terms of what's happening in the market, right? Because what's happening in the market is what the consumer wants in a lot of ways, right? So your regulation needs to adapt to that consumer choice and to a world in which the consumer is driving that choice in their financial services.
0: Yeah. And I think there's two kind of interesting trends or points you hit on. I mean, you hit on in a lot of ways, the discussion around open banking is the is the discussion around consumer data rights. Period. And around the world, this has been a heated debate around, or not a debate, a heated discussion about, you know, even the U.S. discussing a constitutional amendment giving people right to their data, like to that degree, to soundly say that consumers and humanity should be respected to basically own and have rights over their the data that they produce because we've discovered that quote unquote data is the new oil, right? But the reality is is that there's immense value to it and it can be used to benefit off of us or we can use it to. benefit... Ourselves. The second piece of this, and this is kind of more tongue-in-cheek, funny one, is many of you may agree, but I think uh, the buzzword around all of fintech for, or at least around large institutions for the last couple of years, has been the term client-centric, to the point of Dilbert comics being made about how no one really understands what that really means. It's just a buzzword like synergy. But the reality is, is that what's what's really amusing about this is that this type of policy is actually forcing client-centricity. The thing that a lot of them are saying that they're trying to focus on and redeveloping and recreating their firms in terms of being client-centric. This is exactly Exactly. Supporting that is if you take a client-centric approach to data and the implementation of that with an open banking, then frankly, stops being a buzzword. It actually starts being something of value. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you all for coming on. I very much appreciate this. Uh, this is, uh, we didn't get as, as heated as the European one. That was, that was amusing, but we did, we did have our moments. So I very much appreciate you all taking the time for this. Thank you again.
1: Really appreciate being on it. If you're going to do a Canada deep dive at any point, we can get heated for Canada if you want. Oh, trust me, the Canadian one got really heated.
0: <laughs> In fact, uh, I won't say which were the guests, but the when when basically going over how things were going to go, uh, the first comment was made. How many f bombs am I allowed to drop? To which my response was, I will have to bleep them to keep the you know no explicit language uh, checkbox marked. <laughs> Oh, trust me. I, I think one of the one of the underlying themes around around this entire thing is how much Canada sucks at this. But we'll get to that anyway. Gentlemen, thank you yet again. Take thank care. Thank you. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed that second piece on open banking. And as you can hear, <laughs> sorry, the next one is going to be on Canada. And I think you're going to already get an impression of uh, of how that's going to go because, uh, yeah, things aren't great here, but it was great to get the perspective of what is working in America, how it's worked and how it's been different. Because as John pointed out, they may not be the world leader in regulation, but they sure as heck are the world leader in implementation. And with that, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, take care.